Last week, Rupert spoke so superbly about what is love and what is being in love. And uh, this week, I'm going to have a look at uh, what are some of the things that love is not. In uh, the Corinthian chapter that Reuben referred to, there are actually eight things that love is and how well he handled that. Love is patient, love is kind, love rejoices in the truth, love protects, love trusts, love hopes, love perseveres and love never fails. But if you look at the text, there's actually eight things there that love is not. It's not envious, it's not boastful, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily provoked, it doesn't record a record of wrongs and it doesn't delight in evil. Well, I'm going to try and pick up eight tips from the current literature on relationships that might help us work through some of these things about what love is. First of all, in Gary Chapman's famous work, he says there are actually five languages of love. There is quality time. There are acts of service. There's physical touch. And let me have a look what else we've got here. There's a few more. There's giving of gifts. And there's words of affirmation. Now the thesis of Chapman is that if your love language is quality time and you get everything else given to you, you may never really feel loved. If your love language is words of affirmation, then if you get all the others and you don't get the words of affirmation, then you may not feel really loved. And a lot of couples haven't got a clue about what their love language is or what their partner's love language is. Haven't got time to do that test, but there will be a questionnaire after the service. Have a look at it and see if you can find out which language of love you have because if you aren't speaking to your partner in a language they understand, then you might as well be talking Japanese. So that's the first point. There's another great book called His Needs and Her Needs. And in that book, the book suggests that a man's need for sexual fulfilment is very important. And a woman's need for security and intimacy is equally important. But we human beings are more than just the sum total of our given needs. There's more to us than that. So therefore, we've looked at love languages. Let's have a look at a second one, the gender differences. There was a famous book by Dr. Gray called Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And the thesis goes something like this, according to Dr. Gray. Uh, let's imagine a car breaks down in Mars and the guys all gather around and they say, what is it, ignition, petrol, transmission, what's the problem? Driven, project-driven, problem-solving blokes. Now the car breaks down over in the feminine world of Venus and the girls gather round and one says, Mary, how do you feel about the car breaking down? <laughs> and how are we going to pick the kids up from kindy? And, and what a shame you're missing the doctor's appointment or the girls' coffee club. Men are from Mars and women are from Venus, according to Dr. Gray. The trouble is, you see, he says that when women speak to us, men, 
They actually don't want us to fix the problem. They want us to listen. And they want us to know that we listen. And if they nag us, we'll run away and hide in our cave and sulk. But the only problem is when they fall in love, they've got to come down to earth and learn to communicate. Now a great deal of what I'm going to say today applies equally to single people here or to daughters and their mothers, and there's one or two of those here, or to good friends or to married couples. The principles actually don't change. The only thing with Dr Gray's work is like a lot of stuff that comes out of America, it's kind of subtly male chauvinistically based. I happen to be married to a sensitive woman who is a more honest problem pragmatic solver than I will ever be. You know, woman, do you get tired of feeling sometimes, you Christian woman, that your husband's going to line you up and compare you to the great woman in Proverbs 31? You know, she's worth more than rubies. Well, I've done a paraphrase on uh, Proverbs 31 and I don't think there's a man in the audience that could handle the girl. It starts, verse 11, with her husband saying, he has full confidence in her. Then it finishes in verse 28, her husband, he praises her. Now with these twin endorsements, let's see what our girl gets up to. She runs 13 businesses. I'll take a breath. She runs a woolen and flax business. She has an overseas import and export firm. She runs the household staff. She supervises the family catering. She does real estate valuing. She's trusted to buy her own properties and with the profit she makes from properties, she buys a vineyard and runs a successful winery. And she keeps herself in great physical shape. She's a successful trader working well into the night. She produces top quality weaving. She runs a charitable trust. And even in the winter, the whole family are fitted out in the most expensive gear. She's into quilting. She's the smartest dresser in town. She reflects great honour on her man. And she manufactures and retails top quality fashion. She has a fantastic range of men's ties. She has dignity and a great sense of humour. She's an authoritative public speaker. She's a counsellor with trustworthy wisdom. She manages the whole family affairs... She's a complete stranger to laziness. She lives her whole life in awe of the Almighty. And the Bible says, so give this woman the honour she deserves. Somehow, I don't think God's woman in Proverbs fits into Dr. Gray's woman now from Venus. Love languages, that's important. The gender differences are important. But what about our past programming? Harville Hendricks, the Baptist writer, talks about what he calls the imago therapy. He says, uh, let's say the bloke, the bloke carries an image of his mother. Let's say she was a bossy, dominating, abusive woman. Well, when he gets married and Mary wants him to do the household chores, he might just feel harassed and bullied by her because of the image he carries. Let's put it round the other way. The lady has a husband, a father, I should say, who's Mr. Fix-It, and she marries John. 
and John's hopeless at fixing things. So therefore John is hopeless. We need to deal sometimes with the programming from our past. But there's another thing too. Love language is number one of you taking notes. Number two, gender differences. Number three, our past programming. Number four, what about the personality differences? Florence Littow is the, probably the wittiest speaker I have ever heard and in her book Personality Plus she popularised the teaching of Hippocrates who lived several hundred years before Jesus. Old Hippocrates noticed that different people respond to a similar situation differently because they are inherently different. If you summarise his teaching it comes something like this. Now let's say there's four people in an office and here they are in the office. This person is turned on by having fun. This person is turned on by being in control. This person is turned on by having everything perfect. And this person is turned on by having everything peaceful. Now, let's put some stress between them. Let's say the boss says, well come on you guys, you're going to have to work harder. Now there's a funny thing here because in the lunchroom this person tells all the jokes and everyone laughs. This person says it's time to go back to work, half an hour. Hang on, who made him foreman? This perfectionist person, she's weird. She tidies up everything and puts the rubbish in the rubbish tin. And this person is happy with what everybody does. Yes, no, quite happy. Now let there come some stress and let's see what four nice people do and how they respond. The boss says, you've got to work harder. Fun-loving person, probably poke your tongue out at the boss because put that person under stress and you've just made them irresponsible. This person, what do you mean work harder? I'll get my lawyer in here tomorrow. Conflict. This person, oh hang on a minute, we might have just created an obsessive compulsive because everything has to be perfect to measure up. And this person, yes boss, no boss, have you any wool boss? And probably spend the rest of the day reading the Herald in the Bog. This stress has made this person angry, uh, 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 irresponsible, this person angry, this person wants everything perfect and this person lazy and avoidance. Now the interesting thing with this theory is let's see how it works in society. It doesn't matter what you do in society, this church, politics, rugby, there was a great rugby game and Southland won the Ranfley Shield again. <laughs> Let's have a look at the musical show Les Miserables. Well, there's the late Rob Guest, the fun-loving person. Lord above, hear my prayer, bring him home, he is only a boy. Here's the director. He doesn't want to be the star, he just wants to run the show because he likes control. And here's Beverly and I sitting up here enjoying the show. We don't want to be the star, we don't want to run the show, we just want to enjoy it. And down in here, is our perfectionist person. He has to sell all the tickets or the show will not survive. Interesting, isn't it? How society, 
I wonder which group does what round here. That's, or doesn't do it, as the case may be. I remember hearing once the church is filled with willing, willing people, some to work and most to let them. <laughs> now the trouble is when two people with different personalities fall in love or two great friends start to deepen their friendship and before long if they're not careful one will want to go on a crusade to change the other person. So here we have this foolish person trying to change that person and this foolish person trying to change that person. Now, if you want to create real stress, you just try and change a person who was conceived the way they were, whose personality they have inherited and who actually is made in the image of God. You'll create real stress. And we've already seen what real stress will do to different personalities. So here's Jane and here's Harry. Or maybe they're just Mary and Mary who are friends and a little problem's occurring. Now if we're not careful, they can go off and get some help that is not really help. It goes something like this. Jane speaks. The helper, I hear you, Jane. Harry speaks. Helper, I hear you, Harry. Now we get this inane pop psychology advice. Harry, you're going to have to give a bit to make this relationship work. Jane, you're going to have to give a bit to make this relationship work. Which is about as stupid as telling a trumpet and a guitar that both of them should become a flute. What's wrong with the trumpet and the guitar playing the same piece of music as a duet. Shakespeare said, To thine own self be true, then there canst be false to no other. Jesus said it more powerfully, What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses himself? Or what shall he give in exchange for himself? Now this idea of let's find a compromise in here somewhere... It sounds very good and sometimes it does work. It works in industry. The boss can't pay you any more wages. The workers, all right, we'll go on strike. Then we bring in an adjudicator and the adjudicator says, boss, you're going to have to pay a bit more. Workers, drop your expectations. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It works in industry. At the time of the first coup, I was privileged to be flown up to Fiji to sit down with the leaders of the nation for a day of reconciliation uh, with all of them. There has to be ways through conflict in business, conflict in politics. But it's fatally flawed for human relationships because it may not just be a helpful compromise of two difficulties... What if it is inadvertently buying into the dialectic godless materialism of the German philosopher Hegel who taught for every thesis there is an antithesis and the answer is a synthesis. Can someone tell me what happened to the truth? Her truth? His truth? No truth? Unless you can get an Oscar for acting for every moment for the rest of your days and nights for goodness sake don't try this because it is fatally flawed. Well, if there are these differences, how, how, how do we solve them? It helps to get a good understanding of who your personality is in the first place. 
There's lots of tests. None of them are scientific. Probably the most widely used is by Isabel Briggs Myers who outlined some interesting teaching. For example, some of you here today are introverted, sensitive, thinking, judging people. Good for you. Some of you are extroverted, intuitive, feeling, perceptive people. Great. If it helps you to know that you are an ISJT, good. If it helps you to know that you happen to be an ENFP, that will help you greatly. Now, I'm not being cynical here because there's tremendous truth in this. If you do the test, you will find it is remarkably accurate and therefore we can understand ourselves and understand each other better. But there's another issue, which is now number five, and that is the hidden agendas. When two people meet and fall in love, or two friends get really to know each other, they are like icebergs. And we all know icebergs float one-tenth above the surface and nine-tenths underneath. The Titanic hit this one. And when two people meet, that's about as much of each other as they know and as long as the relationship stays as shallow as that, there will be no problems at all. But sooner or later, problems occur and they begin to fight over sex, money, the kids, his spending, her sport, his sport, their friends, his friends, the church. And they come to me and they say, oh, Brian, as a therapist, can you help us to communicate? I seriously think if one more couple say that to me, I'll be tempted to shoot them. (laughs) So I say, you don't fight over these things. We do fight over things. You don't fight over the things. There was an argument I heard somewhere overseas where people had this kind of a discussion. Yes, no, yes, no. Now they're fighting with me and we've added one. (laughs) These things are just triggers. Only an imbecile would want a relationship as shallow as that. Hey, listen, this guy down here, he wants intimacy and that's a lot deeper than sex. And she wants intimacy and that's a lot deeper than sex. And so these discussions, these are just triggers and we all have to deal with this stuff. So where's the problem? The problem is usually unresolved emotional issues under the surface in our iceberg and we push them down to get on with living but like buoyant beach balls, they want to come up to the surface. And I'm telling you now, now we've got real stress down here and so it won't make any difference what the subject is. These trigger this. So we have sex problems. We have money problems. We have children's problems. We have any problem you like. Now, if we teach people to communicate and we don't deal with the poison in the underneath, won't we just help them to inject the poison more effectively into each other? If uh, the hidden agendas are serious, and they are, People may say to me, like this bloke, hang on a minute, Brian, I'm a Christian now. What's this business all about beach balls? I never used to believe, but there came a day when I knew I just had to find a God. I realised there was a God, then I realised how impossible it would be for a really good person, and I wasn't that, to even come into the presence of the 
absolute eternal essence of purity and power. Ouch! So I recognised there was nothing I could do to clean up my act. Not to measure up to God's standards. In other words, I was so falling short. And that's when I grasped that Jesus came to earth as a man to die for my shortfall, my self-centeredness and my sinfulness. And Jesus seemed to say to me, here it is, believe this and I promise you my spirit will touch your spirit and if you believe you will be ready for heaven. Not because you'll ever be good enough, but because I, Jesus, am good enough and I cover you because of my death. It's called the spiritual new birth and it's yours, says Jesus, if you just say yes to it. Well, I did that. And I did too, from a life of atheism. So what's all this business about beach balls? Didn't Jesus take all that stuff away? He took our sin away. He put us into a right relationship with Jesus. But he didn't take away our humanity. Romans 8.26 says, in the same way the Holy Spirit helps us with our weaknesses or our emotional hang-ups. Now the Greek word there is synantilambanian. It's only mentioned twice in the New Testament and whatever else it means, it certainly means just help. It cannot mean take away. So why doesn't Jesus take away all this stuff? Because he's got a great job to do with it. That's the stuff that he wants to work with us until we die so that we can get a better understanding of why trivial little things cause the tremendous explosions that happen in relationships. In the same way the Holy Spirit helps us with our infirmities. Well, what if we're totally opposite people? We've seen the problem. What if we've got tremendously damaged stuff underneath? How on earth can two different people like that work together and find a relationship? Jesus said it when he quoted Genesis 2.24 and this, for this reason, you leave your mother and father. Remember Harville Hendricks, the Imago therapy? You leave your mother and father, you disconnect from your past, You cleave together. Under God you make your own rules for how this relationship is going to work. And you become one flesh. Now the old writers said one flesh was the sexual act of marriage. But I'm indebted to Dr John Sturt for pointing out that the best way two can become one is actually in the act of weaving. The thread is woven and the two become one. So, there is purpose in the difference. As the French say, vive la difference. The two become one because without the two different people you won't have any weaving of any significance or of any worth. But love is more than just weaving. If the idea is a mutual weaving, how how do we get into this mutual weaving of intimacy? Where is this highway to intimacy? 
You get a clue of it from the game of baseball. I'm a cricket man myself, but until they sort out this horrific betting and gambling business, cricket hasn't got much to commend it. The name of baseball is you have to get to base one and base two and base three before you get a home run. Now let the home run equal intimacy and for blokes intimacy and sexual oneness if you like. When the guys come for help to therapists, that's what they want to do. They just want to take a shortcut. (laughs) They want you to give you all the books on sex and how it works. The girls know very well there are three bases to be touched. Do you know the favourite fairy tale for ladies and girls is Cinderella? The Grimm's brothers from Germany maintained they wrote it and like most Germans they have great trouble telling the truth like Hitler. (laughs) It's on the ancient walls of Egypt. It's 7,000 years old and it has been appealing to women ever since. Why? Well, look at the story. Cinderella's is in a very unsafe place and along comes a fairy godmother and suddenly she feels safe And secure. Base one for the blokes, make her feel safe and secure. The fairy godmother waves the magic wand and Cinders is drop dead gorgeous off to the ball in a coach. Hang on a minute, she always was drop dead gorgeous. She was made special for who she is, not how she looks or cooks or anything else. And in every version of the story I have read, off she goes to the ball with non-sexual touching. They dance her and the prince, possibly a little foot fetish on the stairs at midnight. (laughs) Men, there's no shortcut. Make her feel safe and secure. Make her feel special for who she is. Make her feel that touching hugs, walks, kisses. If those are only given as a prelude to sex, then I'll tell you this much, it'll be a turn off to her. But love is also more than that. What about adult love? You know, there's a teaching called TA, which is transactional analysis, and I hate all these jargon words, but we have to use them. Here are two people, and you know you could actually use your parent tone and attitude or your adult tone or attitude or your childish tone and attitude. Let's have a look at what happens. I am now talking to you with the parent tone and I'm telling you, wife, you will behave yourself. Okay, there's the parent tone. You know what's going to happen, don't you? She's going to feel hurt and humiliated and made to feel childish. And if she's anything like my wife, she won't stay down there very long. She'll adopt her parent persona and she will tell me and I will go down here all hurt and wounded and run away and sulk in my cave. Can someone tell me how are we supposed to have a meaningful adult intimacy, love and sex on this terms? You see, somehow we've got to get into the adult to adult relationship. How do we do that? Well, this is where we come to understand a pyramid. Not long after I got saved in the Salvation Army, I went along to Canterbury University and was privileged to study with an Anglican vicar, Canon Orange. We were known as his pips. He, um, we did First and Second Timothy Thursdays for, for most of two years. 
And one day I was doing a lot of running for a mile. I was trying to do 100 miles a week and I've never been to Sunday school and even now I don't like touchy-feely psychodrama stuff. I really don't. I'm supposed to. And he asked us to make a pyramid with some scissors and cardboard and sellotape. Here it is. I've kept it all these years, 54 years ago. You can see how roughly I made it. Because I remember saying to him, look, if it's all the same to you, Canon, I'd rather go and run 10 miles around Hagley Park. And he says, well, make your little pyramid in a hurry and go for your little run, Brian. When we'd made it, he told us something profound. He told us we've just made something that is the most stable structure a human being can devise. Now put it on its point. Now you have the most unstable structure a human being can devise. Then he told us to write something on the base of the pyramid. The word of God. And he said, base your theology and your faith on the whole word of God and not on just an isolated proof text and your theology and your life will be sound. Now I thought that was brilliant so I kept it. And about a year or so ago I'm doing some study in Peter's letters in the New Testament, some letters Peter wrote to his mates and I find Peter has a love pyramid. Now an interesting thing in the New Testament, there are three words for love, there's agape, there's eros and there's philia. Eros is um, sexual emotional love. Agape is godly, wholesome love. And philia is mateship. And in Peter's letters, even when he should use the word philia, he doesn't. And I was curious to find why. And I think I discovered why. Because after Christ had died on the cross, and after he had risen again and actually appeared to lots of people, he told the boys to go to the Sea of Galilee and wait for him there, a kind of wait and pray kind of thing. But Peter's like some of you guys, you can only stand that stuff for so long. Hey, come on guys, let's go fishing. And all night fishing they go, catching nothing. And then they hear a voice from the side of the lake calling them to let the net down the other side of the boat. And they let the net down the other side of the boat and there's a catch there that breaks the net. And they realise it's Jesus. And they rip into the shore and there's the master preparing a barbecue for them. You know, I personally believe that that was, was the last miracle Jesus performed. What a fantastic thing that the last miracle he performed, I think, was teaching the boys how to have better recreation. Frank, that means you and I are going to have good golf next Friday. After the meal, Jesus said to Peter, Peter, do you love me, agape? Yep, says Pete, I'm your mate, Philia. Peter, do you love me, agape? Yep, says Peter, I'm your man, I'm your mate, Philia. Jesus drops right down to Peter's level and says, Peter, Peter, are we even mates? Peter was pretty brassed off and he says, look Lord, you know everything. You know I'm your mate. Now some scholars say Jesus was correcting Peter because earlier at his trial, when Christ was on trial, Peter cursed and swore and said, I don't know this Jesus. Three times he did that. And some scholars say, well, Jesus was putting it right with the three questions. Well, that may be so. It may be so. Or when Peter came to write his epistle, did he begin to grasp that Jesus just doesn't want us to be his mates? He wants us to worship him as God Almighty. And that's when I discovered 
this pyramid of Peter in his second chapter, verses 5 to 9. I found a pyramid. Think of the size of the base. And Peter says, faith and trust. And then followed by goodness. And then followed by knowledge. Then followed by self-denial. Then perseverance. Then godliness. Then kindness. Hang on a minute. Where's love? Saying you love a person is as stupid as putting a pyramid on its point if there isn't faith and goodness and knowledge and self-denial and perseverance and godliness and kindness as well. It's a tremendous truth that Peter presents for us. There's also another pyramid in the Bible and that's in Ephesians. And this particular section is very badly edited in the NIV translation. Chapter 5 verse 21 says, Out of your reverence or submission to Christ, you submit to each other. I don't know why men are always cubes in my drawing. I need some therapy about that. So here's the bloke and here's his wife or his two friends and they better submit to something that is greater than the sum of the two of them because if they don't, it will just simply degenerate to control. And after 50 years of therapy, I am convinced that that is probably the greatest evil in relationships today. People trying to control each other and hurt each other and manipulate each other and sometimes even done in the name of God and it is disgraceful. And I'm applying it to myself. Please. So here we have, the Bible clearly teaches the two people first must submit to Christ and then learn to submit to each other. Now the interesting thing is most of the translations have a heading. If you like headings in your Bible, I don't. But they have a heading, husbands and wives is usually put above that verse. The NIV unfortunately puts it down here which starts, women be submissive to your husbands. Ladies, have you heard that? Well, that's fine, as long as this applies first. So I'll show you how it works, guys. All you have to do is convince her that you are so sold out for Jesus Christ that you will love her and give your life for her. And you ladies, do you know you're not commanded to love him? You're commanded to respect him. Now, if he's so sold out for God that he's going to die for you, I think you will have no difficulty in respecting this man. Love busters come in life. You may have all of these truths. Your love language is great. Your gender differences are sorted out. Your past programming has been resolved. Your personality differences are understood. What else have we got here? Your hidden agendas have been dealt with. You've learned how to leave, weave, leave and cleave. 
You know all about Cinderella and the three bases. You've discovered adult love, but you can still find your marriage in real trouble. What about infidelity? What about pornography? What about disloyalty? When a bloke hears from someone that his wife shared with somebody else something that he thought was sacred. What about people who've got security out of whack? What happens when sickness comes? Especially mental sickness. Or exhaustion. Or kids worry. Or money worry. Or health worry. Or work. Or spiritual neglect. Some time ago my wife said to me, not in these words, but this was the truth of what she said, I love you too much, Brian, to let you go on hurting me the way you do, hurting yourself and hurting our family. That's real love. You know, why can't we have the intelligence of chamois goats? My last point today. When two goats meet on a mountain track and the track is too narrow for them to pass, they do an amazing thing. They realise if they fight, one or other will go off the cliff, or both of them. They lock horns. They glare at each other. And then one goat kneels down and the other one walks over it. When I taught this up in Fiji with a lot of Fijian laughter, the boys said, hey boss, which goat goes down first, hey? (laughs) And after a lot of laughter, they came up with this piece of wisdom. Hey, Kevatani Brian. We think the one who is closest to God at the time must go down first. And we hope next time the roles are changed. (laughs) Corinthians, the third chapter. Let me close by paraphrasing this if I can find my piece of paper. This is how I read Corinthians about love. Fantastic utterances will date. Tongues will stop wagging. Oratory and learning will get surpassed. But when the perfect is found, toss out the imperfect. So stop behaving like kids, talking childish nonsense about love, behaving like immature infants with temptation, using ill-informed infantile superstitions about relationships. Grow up, says Paul. Grasp the simple truth that with God's love let loose in our love, any two people can find happiness together, no matter how difficult the problems they are surrounded with. You know, when we get to heaven, it's going to be great because we will love each other with absolute perfection and we will love God and know everything that he knows because he says, even there we will know even as we are known. So take some faith in Christ for the relationship or you will be in trouble. Take some hope that one day you're going to spend eternity in heaven. But most of all, take God's love into your love and that is greater than the tongues of men and of angels. Thank you, Reuben. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.